So the reading is taken from Luke chapter 24, verses 46 to 49. It's on page 1062 of the Bibles. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 to 49. So, Jesus told the disciples, This is what is written, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you to uh, Bart and Chris for their leadership uh, this morning. Uh, I, I uh, am absolutely, incredibly impressed, uh, Chris, that uh, I shall remember my name uh, after this morning in a, in a fresh way. This was very, uh, very impressive. Gork Roger is a strange name. It's, it's hard to say, not a surprise. Um, it's from a 16th century Huguenot name where my ancestor was... Uh, a Huguenot prince, I'm just boasting about that, uh, uh, and was a Protestant and was being persecuted by a sort of Catholic majority. And he was a Monsieur Gauche Roger. Gauche meaning left as opposed to adroit, which means right, and Rod- Roger, Roger, a boy's name. And so the name means go left handed. Roger. And my uh, family and ancestors for years and years have all been left handed. Um, I'm right-handed, and I had the great intelligence to marry a left-handed woman. Uh, And my children are ambidextrous, so it's very confusing in our family, uh, let me tell you. So just a little explanation about the strange surname you're hearing this morning. Now, the theme uh, today is about the Holy Spirit and global mission. You've been in a series, I understand, about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And one of the things which Dr. Luke, our great medic who was responsible for both Luke and Acts, uh, tells us this morning uh, is uh, four uh, key emphases uh, about the cross of Jesus, about the resurrection of Jesus, about the mission of Jesus, and then the power of the risen Jesus sent through the Holy Spirit. And these verses contain those four key key emphases which are common to the church of Jesus uh, around uh, the world. The gospel preached to the nations, that little phrase that occurred uh, here, uh, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Dr. Luke uh, was keen on repetition because the very next bit he writes, which, by the way, is Acts chapter 1 in this two-part series. You do know Luke and Acts sort of run together, really, don't they? Uh, Acts is the sequel you know, Luke's the, the first bit, uh, Star Wars, uh, and um, uh, Acts is the Empire Strikes Back and Son of Star Wars or whatever the sequel is. Uh, usually, I don't know whether you find this, I, I'm not a big film goer, uh, but I normally find that when I enjoy a film, when they do a sequel, it's nowhere near as good. Am I, am I the only person to, to think that? They can't always replicate it the next time round. Well, I want to tell you that Acts is just as exciting as Luke. (laughs) So Luke does a good job once, then he does a good job twice. And in Acts chapter 1, he references mission straight away and the power of the Holy Spirit equipping you to do mission. 
Uh, and so uh, here we have uh, uh, that repeated Lucan refrain uh, going on through this material. And in these verses, uh, uh, Dr. Luke's drawing to an end his uh, biography uh, of Jesus. And uh, uh, he designed uh, specifically with our congregation this morning in mind. What do I mean by that? Uh, Matthew is a gospel largely aimed at a Jewish audience. John is aimed at an audience in which he's very selective about his, his miracle choices. There are seven I am sayings, just very few miracles. It's about a, a teaching gospel. Matthew and Luke are littered with miracles. And Luke, unlike Matthew, is aimed at a Gentile audience, as is Acts, trying to convince Theophilus... The God-lover may be a, a, an interested party, but a Gentile, like many of us will be this morning. So Luke has particular resonance for us about the missionary activity of Jesus. Very important. Okay, so here we are in this amazing passage here. Jesus is saying to them, look, the Messiah will suffer, which is Luke code for going to die. So that's the first emphasis. Uh, Jesus is saying, my suffering is the result of joy to the world. I'm going to die in order that people can live. I'm going to go to the grave so that the grave can be emptied by the power of the resurrection, which we'll come to uh, in a moment. It seems, doesn't it, to many of us, that the death of Jesus, the death of someone, is quite a radical thing to happen. To give up your own life, that, that's a big ask for any person, to give up their life for someone else. So why is it that God felt the need for such a radical solution to human sinfulness? Partly because human sinfulness was so awful and so radically wrong that it needed a radical solution. Uh, and I would encourage you uh, uh, to know this, uh, that the gospel continues to be the radical answer to radical wrong. <laughs> uh, our, our own country, see, global mission isn't really a matter of something that happens overseas. Mission's not a question of geography. It's a question of message. <laughs> It's where we are now, the, the homes around as I drove in uh, uh, to the area, I don't know this area particularly well, the church is surrounded uh, by uh, homes. Church is surrounded by homes. So this is the mission field as well as the mission field in Africa or I know you've got folk in, in Tanzania, for example, I heard this morning uh, and elsewhere. Uh, it needs a radical solution for a radical set of problems. And I, uh, uh, part of the work I do uh, is um, uh, talk, having conversations with some uh, folk who are advising the government in epidemiology and other things and, and talking about the ethics of lockdown and the, the horrific uh, problems that that has left us with. The sheer desperation uh, among parents of teenagers, one in five, uh, now seeking help for stress-related issues. I mean, it, it's devastating. Globally, children and young people have been affected far more dramatically. So we're in a world of great brokenness. Radical solutions are desperately needed for a desperately broken world. And what God, in his wonderful mercy and provision, did is that he sent his son, not another messenger, 
not an idea or a philosophy or a political party, but a son. And uh, those of us who have children and, and, and loving our children, we, we think of the sheer loss of a child and how horrific that can be. Many, many of you may have, have been uh, witnesses to that in other families or tragically perhaps you've experienced it yourself. One of my great challenges in the early years of my ministry was funeral services of children and young people. It was a deeply moving and challenging thing. Nobody expects to outlive their children or worse, their grandchildren. And so we know, don't we, in our hearts, the sheer emotional trauma of losing someone so close to us. And God, in his wonderful father-like compassion for the world, John 3.16 gives his only son. And although it's not very popular to talk about the cross, um, we much rather rush on to the resurrection, we much rather talk about joy and life rather than death. Uh, if we neglect the cross, our evangelism and mission will be rendered toothless. We have to talk about what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The victory over sin and death and Satan. So, here's Luke, quoting Jesus, saying, it's the cross that matters. So, in any missionary presentation, it's a temptation. I remember when I was growing up, there was a temptation to sort of downplay the costs of the gospel and upplay the kind of benefits. If you come to know Jesus, you'll be happy and fulfilled and it'll all be great, I once heard an evangelist say. And I wanted to stand up and say, you know, my experience is not quite that. I've known Jesus a very long time, and at some times following Jesus is a pain in the backside. It's difficult, hard work, and there are some days when it'd be much easier not to be a follower of Jesus. I hope this doesn't sound heresy to you, but it does seem, might as well be honest about the challenges that we have when we follow Jesus. Of course there's a gift of eternal life. Of course we join a family of God. Of course true joy is possible when we know our sins are forgiven. Of course. But it was the death of a saviour which opened the gate to that joy. We must never forget that. And we must challenge. That's why repentance matters. Because salvation without repentance isn't salvation at all. And a gospel message of mission around the world that doesn't talk about the cross isn't the gospel. So Luke says, actually Jesus says, and Luke records... Uh, the Messiah is going to have to suffer. But then he's going to rise from the dead on the third day. And those two dynamic Easter events, which recently we celebrated, didn't we? Um, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, the cross and the resurrection combined into one just amazing salvation event. Just, it is breathtaking that God's son would die for us. That's incredible. And then not stay dead, but be alive. See, it just, it's, it really is a breathtaking um, thing. Now, it's, it's hard. It's hard looking around some of you in the congregation uh, um, because this is a very typical uh, British, uh, Anglican, respectful congregation uh, to see whether you actually believe that it's an amazing thing that Jesus is alive. One of the things I love about preaching in Africa, uh, well, in the West Indies for that matter, is this, this kind of robust response to the gospel. 
Oh, gosh. I was preaching once, and uh, I think it was in Jamaica. It might have just have been in Kingston, just outside. Packed church. Uh, I was the only white face in the entire place. Uh, and I was saying, it really matters. Jesus is alive. See, and everybody's getting more excited than you are. Uh, which, is, which is fine. It's fine. It's fine. We're very British. It's fine. Fine, fine. Don't, don't worry about it. Uh, uh, and so getting very excited and applauding and so on. And then a woman stood up at the back. Right at the back. She stood up in the middle of me preaching. And she yelled at the top of her voice, fetch the fire brigade. <laughs> I mean, I had no idea what that meant, right? I, I, was, I was completely thrown by this intervention. And then she said it again, fetch the fire brigade. Now, very little throws me in public speaking, but I was, I was bewildered by this intervention. And I, I must have paused for a bit. And then she said, the preacher is so on fire, we need the fire brigade. <laughs> Which, no one has ever done that to me before or since, I'm just telling you that. But what I loved about it, although my heart was racing a bit because I didn't quite know what was going on, I love that it was just so genuinely passionate about it. So I pray that uh, if you feel passionate about the resurrection, you will from time to time uh, uh, let your face know it. Uh, and uh, so that would just be a good thing. Uh, that would be great. And, and some of us are much more restrained in terms of personality. That's wonderful too. Um, this is not a call to extroversion. It's just a call to, to ask the Holy Spirit to bring alive the core central facts of the gospel. That Jesus died, a radical solution for a radical problem. And the resurrection, the glorious, wonderful Easter Sunday news. That death itself, we've just sung about it in, um, in the Bless My Soul song that, that we did. And when it comes to the end, and my time is near... May I still be singing? What is there to sing about in those moments at the end of life? The answer is because death has been defeated. It's been emptied of its power by this resurrection act. And so we praise God uh, for that. So Jesus is saying, and, and those twin events, my suffering and my resurrection, you see this as you follow through. If you've got your Bible open, you can see the way this moves. Uh, uh, or if you're looking at a Bible uh, on a, a phone or a, a, a tablet. When I first started in ministry, I used to say, please open your Bible to whatever. Now I say, please turn your Bible on. <laughs> when I start speaking in lots of congregations. So it, however you're engaging the scripture this morning, the reality is that as we step through these phrases, you see suffering, point number one, resurrection, point number two, and the fruit of that, of course, is the forgiveness of sins. You, you see that in the next phrase. The wonderful joy of being set free, of being forgiven, uh, of being made clean. I, uh, in many situations uh, around the world and in my own uh, pastoral ministry, have, have been with people whose lives have been so utterly, utterly wrapped up in sinful behavior, sexual, moral, ethical, violent, I, I mean, extreme examples from many of our points of view, and to see the the, the joy on the face of someone who feels washed and cleansed by Jesus. 
Most of us don't feel the benefit of forgiveness because, um, emotionally, but because we grew up in fairly uh, safe, predictable households, like I did. I grew up in a Christian home. And so it's easy to believe uh, that we haven't been forgiven for very much because <laughs> nothing much has changed because we're just as nice as we were. Uh, but actually, forgiveness, of course, is a much deeper thing. Uh, and for those of us who grew up in a Christian home or been Christians for a long time, it is hard to feel the deep significance of being cleansed and forgiven. I uh, gave my life to Jesus Christ as a, a boy probably seven years of age. I can't quite place it exactly. I knelt at my bedside as a little boy and I prayed this prayer. I remember exactly the words. I said, Dear Lord Jesus, I want whatever it is my parents have. Amen. Now I know, you know, Bart's going to speak to me afterwards and tell me that's not theologically very sound, right? Okay, it's not, not a great prayer. I agree, but I believe that Jesus touched me in answer to that prayer because my parents were so committed to introducing me to Jesus themselves. But when I was a teenager, I found it very frustrating because I was a teenager at the time of dramatic testimony stories. Uh, Some of you will remember, because you look my sort of age, uh, about uh, the gangs of New York and David Wilkerson and, and all this sort of stuff and people being saved from very difficult backgrounds. I, want, I long to have that kind of testimony. I, I wanted to stand... In, I was preaching from a very early age. I wanted to stand up and to be able to say, you know, uh, I was getting drunk all the time and on drugs and sleeping with a different woman every night... Uh, and then I got saved at the age of seven. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just didn't ring true, really. It just didn't ring. It just, it just wasn't real in any meaningful way. And, and so the challenge for those of us who've been Christians forever, or it feels like it, is that we don't have this sort of raw gratitude for forgiveness. But I need to say, uh, and I'm grateful that I've had this sense over the years, Lord's reminded me of my imperfections and my need of him. Uh, if you know Jesus through the death and the resurrection of himself and have been forgiven of your sins, that is a gloriously cleansing experience, whether you feel it emotionally or not. It's just this wonderful gift that comes. And that's what mission is about, by the way. It's leading people into cleansing. It's leading people into new starts. That's what forgiveness enables It's the glorious reality of the gospel that sets people free. And although in a politically correct age, it's very hard to talk about other cultures and religions in some of these ways. But I have seen uh, the sheer cruelty of the way people are treated in fundamental Islam, for example. The sheer cruelty and the crushing of the human spirit No wonder we need that victory and that release and that forgiveness in this culture and all over the world. And that's why it's our job to share it. So the passage goes on, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's going to be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Do you see how that echoes the Acts 1-8 phrase, you will be my witnesses? It's Luke setting us up for all that Acts is going to 
tell us about. We're all the witnesses, aren't we? We're all the witnesses. Whose job is it to share the good news in this community and through the world? The easy thing for members of a congregation, the easiest thing, is to kind of have an emotional abdication of responsibility because you've got some lovely missionaries overseas. It was great to see their names on the sheet and and there's a board at the back common in churches with with pictures of the world and and then pieces of wool or string going to these these places around the world. Uh, Fantastic. But if we're not careful, we kind of outsource uh, missionary activity to people in other countries. And whose job is it to share the good news, the mission of God... Here, in this area. Well, you know, it's Bart's job and Chris's job and the worship team's job. And it's easy to abdicate to the professionals. And the danger is that the passivity of Christian life, where and church services tend to play into this if we're not careful, uh, that congregations come to church on a Sunday morning, praise God for that, thank you, for being here in obedience to Hebrews 10.25. You are not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. Well done. Brilliant. I'm glad that you're doing that. But, but the, the culture breeds passivity if we're not careful. We don't think of ourselves as witnesses. Think of ourselves as worshippers maybe. And great. But not necessarily active witnesses to the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And sometimes our, our services pander to that passivity. Church services can feel, not this morning, it's been very engaged in a number of ways, uh, uh, both Chris's leadership and, and uh, Mark, I think, led the intercessory prayer, really pushing us to think beyond ourselves. Wonderful. Uh, but the, the, the physicality of the building, not this building, any building, can breed passivity. Uh, and so it, church can feel like a kind of coach tour in which, you know, Bart's the bus driver or Chris or whoever's leading and and they sort of welcome people at the door come on in, we're going to have another tour we had a good one last week, we're going to have another one this week look out the coach on this side and you'll see a bit of John or Jeremiah or or so on and then, you know, halfway through many churches, you know, collect up the fares otherwise known as the offering Uh, and then at the end of the tour The bus driver says, Amen, that signals the end of the tour. And people get off the coach and go out and leave and come back for another tour this time next week. And and it can can feel just you're observing stuff happening here. Here. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, theologian, uh, uh, said, Sometimes people think that the the minister and the worship team uh, are like actors on a stage. The church is like a theatre. They're the actors congregations the audience and God's a kind of prompter who whispers in the preacher's ear from time to time say this <laughs> or whispers in the worship team you know sing that again or don't sing that or something and Kierkegaard makes the helpful point that's completely the wrong way to think of church actually the audience is God the performers are you and I in the congregation and the prompters are simply those who stand at the front or who lead prompting us to offer our acceptable worship to the God who is the audience. That's the way to think of what is happening, which means that we are participating in worship, and when we leave, we are participating in witness. There's no passivity about it. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. 
One way or another, brothers and sisters, we're God's witnesses. We might be terribly, terribly bad at it or terribly good at it, but we are witnesses. People know we go to church or maybe we, uh, uh, you know, we talk about our faith in some way. So I encourage you to be a witness and to share the good news and not outsource your evangelism and mission to others. Yes, pray for those who are overseas. God bless them. Pray for your church leadership, obviously. But they are, they are partners in the missionary task. They are not the deliverers exclusively of missionary activity. And the fourth thing, which is a sort of denouement of the whole thing, the conclusion, the, 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 the dramatic moment in Luke's writing in this chapter, go and wait in Jerusalem because you will then be clothed, lovely uh, expression here in the original language, uh, clothed with power from on high. <laughs> in other words, it, that's a sort of synonym code for the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Jesus has to be leaving as he, uh, the whole, you know, whole chapters of John's Gospels about this. Jesus has to leave, he says, in order for the Holy Spirit to come. Now, clearly, the Holy Spirit's not invented. Is the Holy Spirit not invented in the first century? Holy Spirit's eternal, Father, Son, and Spirit from before the dawn of time. There. But the Holy Spirit, released in this special way, could only happen when Jesus is ascended. And so he says, look, you need to be equipped because you're never going to cope with a missionary activity. You're never going to have the power to be purveyors of biblical gospel reality unless the Holy Spirit is inspiring you. Most of us um, uh, are weak. Remember the, the Corinthian material that Paul writes about. Not, not many wise are chosen. Many of us feel inadequate. I, I, I often think this in the worlds which I engage. Huge amounts of my life is dealing with governments or dealing with archbishops or, or heads of denominations or mission agencies. And sometimes I feel deeply inadequate to the task of creating strategic vision in some of the cities that I have some engagement with. We are all weak in different ways. Some of us feel very weak this morning because we're elderly or unwell or tired or believing we've got very little to offer. The early disciples actually felt like that. They're cowering in an upper room in Acts 2. Fishermen, tax collectors. The authorities actually thought of them as, the little Greek phrase, a grammatoi idiotoi, meaning, do you know what, can you guess what the Greek word idiotoi means? Yeah, you're not wrong, right? <laughs> unlearned, not clever people. And yet, one sermon from a bolshy fisherman called Peter, and how many people come to faith? 3,000. And you and I are sitting in a building in the London area, in Great Britain, miles from where this action took place, 2,000 years later, and there are millions of us around the world following this Jesus. Who'd have thought it? It couldn't have happened by a brilliant strategic plan, a spreadsheet for the gospel. It needed the power of the third person of the Trinity. And my brothers and sisters, 
as I conclude this morning, I invite you with me to ask the Holy Spirit to be the empowerer you and I need to be sharers of good news in our daily life, in our place of work, in our family, in our home. And through the missionary money we will give today and through our mission agents, we're praying for the power of God to be released because without it, the powers of darkness will defeat us without the power of God. The secular forces of the West, the religious forces of the East and the South, will defeat simply a good idea. But they will never defeat a God idea. And as the Gospels clearly maintain, the gates of hell won't prevail ultimately against the Gospel, for which we give praise and thanks to God.